0: We Welcome
1: back today our friend
0: Peter Hyatt, who sees
1: everything through the most beautiful lens of grace. Peter is the pastor of the Sanctuary Denver Church. He is the author of a number of books including, All Things New, What Does the Bible Really Say About Hell? Recently, Peter began a series of sermons where he is going through the book of Romans, and you can hear all of these sermons on the church's sermon podcast just search for The Sanctuary Downtown Peter Hyatt, H-I-E-T-T, and you'll find them. And so, Peter, welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. <laughs> Thank you, David. So glad you're doing this. <laughs> well, I thought I should maybe give you a little bit of a warning, Peter. In case you don't know this, it's, it might be a little difficult to preach all the way through the Book of Romans because it's, it's kind of daunting. And I'll say there's been a lot of theological shipwrecks in the book in the book of Romans so wow good for you for tackling this tackling this <laughs> yeah. whole thing how did how did this come to you and did you are you, did you fear a lot of did you have some fear and trembling as you approach
2: this oh yeah sure i mean i've always viewed romans as sort of the systematic uh, theology um, authority you, you know in scripture and uh, I think over the years I've preached these expository sermons, and I would go back to Romans over and over again to say, "Am I seeing this right? Is this just nuts?" Uh, both with the Old Testament, because Paul quotes the Old Testament over and over, and you know he's uh, a, a very accomplished rabbi. Yeah, he seemed to think
1: with, the old he seemed to think the Old Testament was scripture
2: yeah he sure did and I mean when you look really take a good look at Romans the whole thing is almost Old Testament scripture it's shocking when you really analyze it and then his epistle was one of the first uh you know letters of the New Testament and it, it was his, his epistle was written before the gospels were written and he knew those guys so um it it makes sense that uh his his theology is really a a way of understanding the Gospels as well as Johannine theology, the Revelation. So anyway, preaching through all these books, I would go back to Romans over and over again, looking and asking myself, am I crazy? Or did John just really say that? Or did Ezekiel just really say that? And over and over again, I was amazed at the book of Romans. And then uh, when I began seeing, particularly in the Revelation, all these scriptures that um, seemed to claim God would make all things new in a rock hard sort of way, I would go back to Romans and realize, well, Romans is saying exactly the same thing. And then uh, I think I was kind of fascinated by the theology of Karl Barth and so much of his theology is centered in, in Romans. So yeah, it's a little bit daunting to to do Romans. So, And, and what's hard is, you know, he's written it as As a letter, as you um, pointed out to me, and when you write a letter to someone, it's a little bit terrifying to think that they might cut sentences out of it, put it in an office calendar and set it on their desk uh, because... It's just th- those statements that are lacking context, particularly when you are engaged in an argument. So it is daunting because I feel like I have to keep going back to the big picture and reminding everybody w- w- what is the big picture, and Paul goes back to the big picture over and over and over again throughout Romans. Once you see it, its I think it's a little bit shocking. It, it's everywhere.
1: Well, one of the things that sort of helped me is, I mean— Romans can sort of feel like you're getting dizzy when you're trying to read through it, and you just sort of start to feel a little, I don't know, intellectually disoriented, maybe. Like, where is this all going? And so what I discovered is that Romans is this really long rhetorical argument that's got back and forth and arguments and counter arguments, but it all ends up in Romans eleven thirty-two, and then there's this beautiful doxology that follows it. And then Then after I realized that Romans ends up in 1132, it's like, I don't know if you've ever watched a movie. You were real tense all the way through because you didn't know how it was going to end. Yeah. But then you you realized, oh, it it has this happy ending. Then you go back and watch the movie. You're not tense at all anymore because, oh, now you're just seeing how all of the plot twists and turns are going to result in this glorious ending. So could you tell us a little bit about Romans 1132 and kind of how that, Yeah, I don't know, maybe helps us to feel good about, you know, going on this journey.
2: Yeah, sure. And let me just say that uh, I think Romans 11.32 is a key to not only Romans, but all of Scripture, and not only all of Scripture, but your life. And like you said, once you know the plot, you go back and look at the story, and the meaning of all the pieces in the story have changed because you know the plot. And biblically speaking, um, Jesus is the Logos, which— you. Basically, means the plot. He's the reason or the meaning for all things. And the name Jesus really means God is salvation. So once you come to terms with the living plot, who is God is salvation, it really changes everything. But in Romans, he's describing it in a very theological way. So in Romans 11, 32, he, he's, he, he um, summarizes, I think, his argument for the first 11 chapters when he says, and you know, therefore God consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. And uh, then he proceeds to move into the more ethical portions of the book, saying, so this is what that uh, looks like. Um, but I think once you do justice to that sentence, it changes the meaning of the whole book and it changes the meaning of your life because it, it, theologians would call it super you know super lapsarianism maybe. but it's the idea that God never messed up. Um, he consigned us to disobedience for a reason. He's using all of these things for this incredible pur- purpose, which is a revelation of His grace. And it turns out that this story of grace um, transforms us into His image. So He is still creating us in the image of, uh, of God is still creating us in His own image, and He won't fail. So, in my mind, that that really transforms everything and can give you confidence in the plot, just like like you said. So hold on, Romans eleven thirty two is coming. <laughs> yeah yeah we will get there but let me yeah. just make... wait, wait, let me just mention this too okay. once you see that it shows up throughout the book i mean it's it's a bit shocking to me i think how on earth do people read romans and not get this if if i don't if i start with once i once i swallow romans eleven thirty two, and i go back and i read the letter you'll see it all over the place well
1: Speaking about how people have not gotten Romans, let me just make an observation about Romans, that, that Romans begins with one very extended sentence, which doesn't end to the until the seventh verse of Romans chapter one, but it ends this way, to all in Rome who are beloved of God and called to be holy, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus the Anointed. At least that's how David Bentley Hart translates that, that part of it. Now, the ironic thing to me is that because of the way Romans came to be understood in Western Christianity, there has been very little grace or peace either experienced or transmitted. And that's because Western Christianity split into two camps, an exclusive Augustinian Calvinist camp, which said that grace saved but did not go to all, and into a transactional armenian free will camp which said that grace went to all but did not save leaving everyone terrified of an inscrutable god who torments spiritual failures in hell forever and ever and ever thereby evacuating grace of its true meaning and destroying the image of god as a loving father and thereby spiritually traumatizing millions upon millions of people now i know that's a hard assessment. Well, what would you have to say to all of that?
2: Yeah, I'd say amen. I, um, I mean, the irony, I, I think in some ways, goes even a, a little bit deeper in that uh, in, the, in the Western church, once the church really was conscripted by the empire, um, people started to believe more and more that their analysis of the judgments of God and let me put it this way, their knowledge of good and evil, that they could take the knowledge of good and evil and then use that and apply it to their lives in order to save themselves, which, if you think about it, sounds a little bit familiar. Sounds like, sounds like the garden, well, in the temptation in the garden. Well, in the East, I think they still kind of hung on to more of the view of the ch- Church Fathers that... then you mean the Eastern Orthodox Church? Yeah, Eastern Eastern Orthodox, that the that salvation was um the the work of the the spirit the work of a living lord so you weren't saved by your knowledge of good and evil you were literally saved by the life of christ which i think goes back to this fascinating connection between the trees and the garden and the cross but that's a huge topic but let me let me so let me just point out the weird irony then of romans 11:32 so Paul writes, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. And the next sentence, the doxology you talked about is, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What's fascinating about that to me is Paul, in the very next sentence, after he makes this incredible claim that God consigned all to disobedience, so he may have mercy on all, is he immediately realized that this is hard for the human mind to comprehend and so he says his judgments are um, unsearchable or inscrutable and inscrutable his ways so what starts happening around the sixth century or and i you know i guess has happened this is part of the institutions of this world is both both on the calvinist side and the arminian side people say We understand the judgments of God. In other words, we know exactly how the cross works. And according to our theory, it cannot either the Calvinists would say or the Arminians would say it cannot work for everyone because ultimately man's judgment is more powerful than God's judgment. Mm-hmm. Or on the Calvinist side, they would say, well, it only works for some because we understand God's judgment, and some people have to end up in this place of eternal torment, so therefore God cannot die for all. And with our judgments, we undo the very clear statement of Romans uh, 11.32. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, for me, that was a bit of the shock in studying Romans that because we... Th- we think we understand the atonement we say well it's impossible for god to save everyone which is ironically exactly where jesus says to his disciples what's impossible for for man is not impossible for god yeah the um
1: so i think that sometimes people say well um i don't like this whole calvinist approach and i don't like the arminian approach and so, I guess since I don't like either one of those, I don't like Christianity because Christianity is one of those two approaches in some way. Um, but what you are helping us to see is that no that that early on in the early centuries of the church, there was a a unified gospel which made sense of all that, a truly loving gospel, but we've forgotten we've forgotten that. And so could you say just a little bit about this forgotten gospel that used to be there and that we can return to and still investigate?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, once you allow for the idea that God is um, successful, <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that love actually works and love does not fail, um, and we, The answer becomes, I think, rather obvious. And there are some other reasons why in our society we we don't believe this. But the the big idea is that um, we are the children of God. And God is a good father. And like a good father, he is going to shape us in his image. And because God is outside of space and time, because he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, If he says to us, I am going to make you like myself, he can do it. And Mm -hmm. I think the underlying story of scripture, and I think this becomes clear in Romans, especially as you get into some of the later chapters, is that we've started reading the Bible in the wrong place. So in the very first chapter of scripture, God issues a judgment, I'm going to make man humanity or adam in my own image and likeness and then when you get to the second chapter it says on the on the day when you know no uh, bush was in the field or whatever and it's clear that now it's going back to the story of the creation of adam and i wrote a book about this that i helped me a lot with my science brain but i think scripture is clearly saying that we're still being created and on the seventh day god's rest which is a picture of the eternal kingdom everything is good and it is finished and that that happens through this amazing tree in the garden on mount calvary which is related to all the other trees Mm -hmm. where god tells a story of grace that creates faith within his children and that, and God can do that with all of his children, with all of his people. So well, this is the big idea that I'm getting to. So let me just say yeah. this real quick. If you, if, if you start, if you make the doctrine of salvation the way Western Christians have done it, that somehow this world is a test to see whether or not you can be saved, well, we're all sunk. And that's basically called the law. But if you make the doctrine of salvation part of your doctrine of creation, well, then the story of grace and redemption becomes part of the manufacturing process of what it means to be human, and God can be entirely successful with that endeavor. And then this is the wild thing. Salvation is ultimately being okay with your own creation. And if God truly is my creator— well, I don't deserve anything. I don't earn anything. Absolutely everything is a gift. But if I believe that I am my own creator, I'm not able to dwell in his presence without that psychology, that psyche being destroyed just by the very manifestation Mm -hmm. of his presence. So I got off course there, but I think that's what the book of Romans reveals.
1: Well, what I was wanting to point out was that when you're, when you're talking the way you are, I, I just did a podcast interview with uh, John Baer. He's uh-huh. done a fresh translation of Gregory of Nyssa's on the, on the human image of God or on the creation of humankind. And when you're talking that way, you're sounding an awful lot like Gregory of Nyssa. In other words, to me, you're not sounding new. You're sounding old. And yeah, that was a that,
2: bit of a to be honest that was a bit of a shock for me because years ago preaching expository sermons I kept coming to these conclusions and wondering if I was mentally ill and then I you know I got to meet Ilaria Romelli and uh interviewed David Bentley Hart started learning more about the early church fathers and I thought oh well, this is wonderful I'm not I'm not mentally ill I'm like the early Christian so a, a person yeah. that I think a great you know, theories of the atonement are exactly that, they're theories, but I think a beautiful picture of atonement is Irenaeus, who had the recapitulation theory, but all of those theories are fascinating. I think the the one theory that is critiqued in a really, surprisingly, in a really powerful way by Paul is is substitutionary atonement theory, and it's not that all of substitutionary atonement theory is wrong, it's that... We have come up with these judgments that make sense to us, but they contradict what Paul has said, and they put, and and they have the effect of putting salvation back into the hands of people, which is a way of denying the truth that God is salvation, which happens to be the very name of Jesus. So I think the early church, they were much more confident that Jesus was actually the Savior and the institution was not the Savior. Well, one of the things, uh, you're a preacher's kid. You grew up in church,
1: and um, I, in a way, I had the benefit of growing up outside of church and hearing all of this stuff uh, in a different way. So, for instance, I grew up outside of church, and there I'm a teenager, and people are telling me, I grew, I'm in Irving, Texas, in the, you know, in the South, in the Bible Belt, and my friends are telling me, listen, you need to get saved. You need to get some faith. You need to get faith so you can get saved. Well, how do i get to faith well you got to you got to believe well what do i have to believe well you have to believe all these things about jesus well how can i know if these things are true Well, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to know right. if they're true you just need to believe them so you don't go to hell forever so you're and i say so what you're saying to me is i need to b- say i believe a bunch of things are true when i don't know they're true so i need to say a lie to god so that god won't send me to hell but wouldn't god know i was lying and, yes. and they just kept saying, man, you just need to stop thinking about this and just say, say the words, say that you believe all these yeah. things, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. So then it planted in my mind that, oh, I've got to come up with this thing called faith, but who knows what it is or how you actually get it or how you know if you have it. But you better do it before you die, because if you don't, then God's going to put you in hell and he's going to torment you there forever and ever and ever. And <laughs> they were that's why they were so scared for me, because they really believed that was going to happen to me.
2: Yeah, so they had to save you from God with their knowledge of good and evil. That all sounds familiar, right?
1: <laughs> right. So faith, but then, but then I realized that no, there's a different way of looking at what faith is, and I think you do a good job of of, of working that out in this. Because could you tell us a little bit about what what faith is?
2: Yeah. So this is a humongous topic, and this is probably I don't. It's hard to even know quite where to start. But maybe the best verse just this idea and i think i think paul was pretty related to whoever wrote the book of hebrews but in hebrews you know it's in the new king james version it translates it this way faith is the substance of things hoped for so in other words faith isn't simply a psychological idea in your head but it has like it's somehow the presence of something that is to come and when you read Scripture, Scripture talks about faith that way, like it's a like it's a seed. And Jesus talks about the word goes out and it germinates as a seed. When you get to Paul in books like uh, Galatians, if you read chapter 3 carefully, you'll notice that he equates the the promised seed to Abraham with Jesus and, and equates the coming of that seed or the coming of Jesus with the coming of Jesus of faith as if faith is not faith is not simply an idea in our head but faith is like a substantive thing so when paul starts talking about justification by faith he'll say and this is a this is an argument in bible translation so this is where it's great to get an interlinear or whatever but there are several verses where modern versions will translate it that were justified by um, faith in jesus but the most obvious way to translate the the genitive is what they call it there is mm-hmm. the faith of jesus and you can get into a complicated discussion of that um, and so i think it makes the most sense grammatically by far to translate it the faith of jesus but also the um, context of what paul is saying is he's saying look this faith is not something that you come up with and the whole i mean all of Three and four, uh, he, he starts out with a and, shoot, and, and two, he says, he, well, he starts the argument in Romans saying, nobody has faith. Nobody seeks for God. Nobody looks. And so like Karl Barth points out, faith must be a miracle. It's not a thing that we simply uh, come up with, but it's this, uh, it's this miracle created by God. And now this is important to me, David. If you go back, I think we've ignored the garden story. We've ignored it so much of the Bible because of our modern notions of space and time. That's a big, but if you take the garden story seriously and you you have to go back and say, what what on earth is wrong with Adam? And at the very start of the Bible, before the fall, God says, it is not good that the Adam is alone, which is so shocking because he's in a paradise garden with love incarnate. God is right there in the garden with him, and Adam thinks he's alone. Why does he think he's alone? Well, it must be because he cannot see or he cannot trust love who is with him, and faith means trust. So the problem, according to Paul, with humanity is that we don't trust God. We don't trust love, because once I trust something, I do that thing. So all the arguing about faith and works is kind of silly. So, you know, if you tell me to take Interstate 70 instead of Interstate 80 driving to California and I take Interstate 80, it shows that I didn't really trust you. And faith basically means trust. Whenever you whenever you trust someone, the credit for the trust goes to the person who created the trust in you because they created the trust with their trustworthiness but in scripture it goes even further than that when paul starts talking about being justified by faith and when and and he talks about the faith of jesus as if the faith comes from jesus so if you if you can get in your mind that faith is the creation of god it's the substance of things hoped for like paul says in um in Corinthians, faith, we translate it. Faith, Faith, by the way, can be translated faith or faith faithfulness. It, it all means trust, but Paul says it's a, a gift of the Spirit. If you really begin to see faith as a miracle, then I think Romans will start to make sense because Paul is making the argument that we're justified. And this is another big conversation. But justification means to make right. It means to declare right. But you declare right because something is right, and God doesn't lie. So in other places, Paul just clearly says in Corinthians, he says, "Look, Christ is your righteousness." In other places, he says, "It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me." Uh, he says things like faith, hope, and love abide. In other words, they're eternal. They're something. They they come from the age beyond this this age. Well, and then Paul starts talking about justification. And this is where everybody kind of starts to salivate because justification is really salvation. It's how God makes us right. And now this is fascinating. So I just wanted to read this to you. Um, I I sat down and I thought, okay, where in Romans, just in the first few chapters, does he talk about how we're justified? And we're justified by these things. So this is chapter 3, verse 24. Grace is a gift, and obviously that's his grace. His grace makes us right. And then in 3.26, the faith of Jesus, that some people translate as faith in Jesus, but I think it is of Jesus, because then he goes on in the two verses later to say, well, it's faith apart from works. In other words, it's not this thing that you work up. Then in chapter 4, verse 25, he says we're justified by the resurrection of Jesus, that he was raised for our justification. In chapter 5, verse 9, he says we're justified by his blood. In fact, in three, chapter 3, it says all have um, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified um, by, by faith. And then he, he goes on to talk about propitiation. And he says, and it gets translated all kinds of weird ways, but he uses this phrase, by faith in his blood, as if the faith is like the very oxygen in his blood. And then finally, he says, we're justified by our death. It gets translated out, but it's in chapter six, verses seven. But all of the justification is the end of us and the beginning of, of him. And I think what Paul is saying is that it shows up in his life. Look, God created faith in me. You Look at his story of the road to Damascus, and he's making the argument, God can do that in everyone. But the moment you become proud of your faith, as if you were the creator of faith, you seize control of the blessing of God and, in effect, uh, kill it. So once you realize faith is a gift, which Scripture clearly says, well, then you come to terms with grace, and an implication of coming to terms with grace is you want it for everyone. So, it's a huge topic, and yeah. there I just took a shot at it. But
1: um, <laughs> well, I like the—I mean, to me, once I once I started looking at faith through the lens of trust, then it was, then then I started thinking instead of I, I do have. You know, I do believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for our sins and all those things. But then I started looking at his faith instead of looking at faith as the way I believed in him. I started looking at his faith in the way that he trusted his father. And so I thought all I need to do is learn to imitate the way that Jesus perfectly trusted his heavenly father. And and
2: even well, and even more than that, you you need to you need to present yourself a living sacrifice which is what paul is working up to that the moment of faith is the moment of of death to your own ego and um life it's so if if you think of faith as a judgment jesus is the judgment of god he's the good judgment of god and that good judgment of god shows up in me at the point of surrender but he even creates the surrender.
1: Yeah. Well, once I started thinking about all of that, it was just like I sort of learned to relax spiritually and enjoy the and enjoy the whole thing. I, yeah. I sort of had to stop struggling with it and just be a child and just enjoy imitating Jesus and celebrating this wonderful grace in which I'd been included and just learning more and more how to have fun in it.
2: Yeah, so the effect is that you live by gratitude. In other words, you become a worshiper, which is exactly what constitutes the kingdom of heaven. Everybody's worshiping the lamb on the throne for what he's done. And that's another way to tell that he, that that the way we're talking about faith is wrong in the Western church is that Paul makes this huge argument to point out that faith demonstrates God's righteousness. It doesn't demonstrate our righteousness. And in 1 Corinthians, he, he says our righteousness is, is is uh, this is Jesus himself. God has in first Corinthians one 3, he says, God has made him our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and, and redemption. So Jesus rising from the dead in me is called faith, which which is which then gets back to your atonement theories and like the recapitulation theory of of Irenaeus is that we are justified, we're made by, right by the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus is actually rising from the dead within us, which means that we are actually his body, which Paul says over and over again. And, and Jesus says by saying that, you know, I'm going to raise this temple, which is my body, which turns out to be us, which is pictured in the Revelation, so I'm sorry, I get lost in all this, but kind of the big point is, the amazing thing to me is if we just took Scripture seriously, so many theological problems go away, but in the Western church we don't. And that's because I think we're addicted to saving ourselves and we're addicted to institutions. We are powerful institutions that that like to tell people this is what you need to do in order to be saved rather than tell people... Um, well, let, let me just tell you, so if I preach the gospel, I'm telling a story about who God is, and the story itself creates faith. So in other words, if you take a little kid to a Superman movie, you don't have to say to that little kid, look, when we get home, I want you to put on red spandex, a cape, and I want you to run around the yard acting like you're Superman. <laughs> no, the kid just falls in love with Superman, and he imitates Superman because he wants to and i think mm-hmm. that's what paul is saying this story of the gospel is and it's not simply psychological it's substantive and maybe that's you know in the western church part of we've since the reformation we reacted against a lot of things having to do with with communion but i i think paul would say no there is mysteriously mystically there's something really powerful uh, that's being pictured there and that's going on there and jesus really does enter into you as a promised seed and the seed um the seed grows and the seed is imperishable and the powers of hell cannot defeat it
1: now one of the things that is uh, the hardest to trust about god is the judgment of god because i think we're sort of I know it was presented to me that the judgment of God is the way that, jo- that God finally decides he's had enough of me and he's mm-hmm. going to exclude me forever from his presence and he's going to either annihilate me or torment me forever. So, But once you get this different picture of it, that everything that's coming from God is based out of love and grace, then you might even begin to be able to trust the judgment of God. In, in the sermon series, you tell this great story about your son coleman and the and and kicking the plastic ball around in the basement so i wonder if you just kind of tell that story as a way of getting into learning to trust judgment so you can have fun
2: yeah sure and yeah there's gosh um yeah so the, the story i told in the sermon was that you know uh when when my son coleman was little we'd go down the basement and my four kids are all of similar ages, but Coleman is the youngest by three, three years. And we'd go, to, we had this new house, we go in the basement, we just bounced the ball and kind of the, it didn't matter whether we were playing four scare or whatever. It was just throwing the ball around was fun. And Coleman, he didn't really have knowledge of fun or how the thing worked, So he must've been about, I don't know, two or three, but he'd come down and someone would pass the ball to Coleman and then I remember Coleman had this habit of he'd get so excited that he had the ball that he'd hold onto the ball and he'd run to the corner and just he'd just sit down and I'd you know and i'd I'd go up to Coleman and say, Coleman, um this isn't any fun unless you pass the ball my my judgment, my decision was fun. this is about passing the ball, and the judgment of God our Father, is love, and love is all about giving yourself away to others." And so Coleman would sit there with the ball. And sometimes we just say, okay, Coleman, we're out of here. And we'd leave Coleman in the basement, holding the ball all alone in the corner and in the dark. And, you know, and after time, he'd come up and say, I don't want to play anymore Um, because he just didn't, he didn't get the game. He didn't trust my judgment that passing the ball was good. And I think that's a lot like the Bible's description of Hades. If you hang on to your, yourself jesus said this he said unless you lose your psyche for my sake in the gospel and your psyche is your view of reality your identity he says unless you you lose your psyche and that's you translated you, life usually in the bible yeah usually life yeah yeah usually translated life um but it or but probably should be translated soul but it could also be translated psyche it's literally the word psyche Unless you lose your psyche for my sake and well he you know, he who loses his psyche for my sake and the gospel will find it. He who tries to save his psyche will lose it, which is utterly ironic when you think about what we say at evangelism meetings. But anyway, the, the point is, Coleman, if you throw the ball, the ball is gonna come back to you, but a whole lot more is gonna come back to you, and that's this wonderful party that is called life, because life is this communion of fun. So sometimes we'd leave him down in the basement and then sometimes, you know, I would just say, All right, Coleman, you're gonna have to deal with my judgment, and I'd rip the ball out of his his hands. And he would think that my judgment was against fun. But in reality, my judgment was fine because I'm I'm saying Coleman, I'm bound and determined that you learn to to pass the ball, and I think when I told the story in the sermon, I said, you know, it's funny, but Coleman was my one kid that just really got into football, and we'd stand outside when he was older for hours just throwing the football back and forth, and he loved passing the ball. So my judgment to Coleman was that he needed to pass the ball, and I really believe that God's judgment in all humanity is you will love. I'm going to create you to love. And love is all about this communion of grace, this communion of mercy. And now this all becomes profoundly important when you begin to look at the Old Testament and what the temple was and the idea that we are the body and that we're justified by something that is in the blood which scripture calls uh, life and faith. So Jesus is going to say later in Romans, the spirit is life. So if you think of yourself as a body part, if a body part hangs on to the life and the life is in the blood, well, that body part is damned. It literally becomes a blood clot. But once that body part begins to bleed for the body part next to it, if it begins to lose its life, suddenly it discovers that it's finding its life because life is flowing like a river through that body part. So the weird irony about humanity, and Paul's going to address this, is we're all utterly terrified to die, and that's how Satan keeps us in lifelong bondage. We're afraid to surrender the life, and it turns out that Jesus is the life. His very spirit is, is life. But when we begin to lose our life for another, and, and now we all know this on one level, but when we begin to lose our life for another, we find our life, and suddenly we are part of a life much bigger. We have a new consciousness. And so when Paul, when Coleman began to pass the ball, he began to live in a new consciousness. And that was the consciousness of our fun, our life. And, and Coleman found himself in giving the ball away. And I think that's exactly what scripture is saying, what Paul is saying is, and what Jesus is saying is when you begin to lose your life, you find it. So Jesus is the one who gives himself away on the cross, and lo and behold, God gives him his life right back again. He raises him from the dead. Well, that decision to lose your life and find it is the judgment of God, and that's the judgment that's given to us on the cross, this tree in the garden, so that life is this is this communion that I have with all of creation and with Jesus, and I think one day we'll look back and think, Gosh, <laughs> how insane was it that I would hold the ball in the dark all by myself? That's, that's hell. And God conquers hell with his, with his love, his compassion, his presence with us, even though at times his judgment burns. So when I would rip the ball out of Coleman's hands in his little psyche, I'm burning his, his psyche. But that's because I wanted to give it back to him in a much bigger way. So, yeah, that I think that's the judgment of God, that the judgment of God really is fun. You all are going to learn to love. You're all going to learn to enjoy the banquet. You see it over and over again in Scripture. Heaven is this great banquet where everybody shares. It's like a symphony where everyone sings their part. It's this body that's all united under one head, which is Jesus, and this life flows between the members. It, it flows in the blood, and the oxygen, the Spirit, is in the blood. So when Jesus... Um, is, is crucified and resurrected. It fulfills all these Old Testament sacrifices because lo and behold, we thought God was, um, his judgment was this horrifying thing all these years and his judgment is, no, you're all going to join the party. Well, the, um, the, one of the things in your story there
1: is it, you're acting pretty sovereign over Coleman, you're <laughs> sort of exercising a, a sovereign judgment that Coleman will yeah. have fun and one of the things that's really important in our modern culture is the idea that we are the ones that make the ultimate decision about our our outcome and and so there is a kind of a movement now I think with people that are going through some kind of deconstructing their faith it's like wait a second I want to be uh, I don't want to be controlled and I don't and I don't, I don't want a god that controls me i yeah. And so there's this kind of this idea that, well, maybe God isn't sovereign like that. Maybe God doesn't know what we're going to do. And and, and so maybe, and I was just thinking, but what if you had said to Coleman, Coleman, listen, uh, I need you to pass me the ball because I don't know what's going to happen to you if you don't pass me the ball. I might lose you forever, Coleman. And if you hold the ball forever and you don't pass it to me, I can't take it from you. and you may be gone forever and you, and just to think about the anxiety that that would induce in Coleman, but still there's this sort of drive toward people that, no, I still want, it's not going to, it's not meaningful for me to play this game unless I can lose it.
2: Yeah. And yeah right. Anyway,
1: I wondered if you could just kind of talk to all of
2: that. Yeah. That's such a huge topic. So I have to try to remember what I'm want to say here is, um, well, first of all, if, if you're dealing with the God of Scripture, a God that doesn't know the future and isn't all-powerful is not the one that the Bible is talking about. So you pretty much have to throw out all of the Bible. And, and I see what is attractive in that, the idea that you can somehow, your will can be stronger than God's will, which philosophically is a bit bizarre because you're saying that you yourself are the uncreated creator and you're stronger than God. And I think that's really seductive for people, but utterly terrifying that ultimately that really is a biblical picture of Hades or hell. And I think part of the gospel or the gospel is that, well, God will allow us to experience that. So if you really want your will to be stronger than God's will, God will, like I left Coleman in the basement in the dark, but you know, if Coleman stayed in the dark for two, three days, you can bet I would go down there and find him because he's worth everything to me.
1: Probably um, more than two so,
2: you'd t- probably go find him a little quicker than that. <laughs> yeah, I'd find him <laughs> way quicker than that. And you know, and the and the and I'd and I'd try and I'd convince him, I'd say, Coleman, look, um you're this ball I don't care about. I care about you. And I'd try to convince him by suffering for him. So I've told another story about Coleman, because he used to have to go sit on the green couch. Whenever Coleman goes go sit on the green couch, I'd go sit there with him. And the story in scripture is, if you if you want to hang on to your will that way, not only are you condemned to the outer darkness, but Jesus is condemned with you. And in the story of the prodigal son, you remember the father, the story ends with the father standing in the outer darkness with the son. Um, so if I condemn myself, to hell i also condemn jesus to hell with me now the, old, the older, older brother. brother yeah the older brother. yeah the older brother is the one out in the darkness the younger one's in at the party and the father in the end is standing out in the older in the darkness with the older son it's such a beautiful picture and jesus just ends with the story there like i don't know how long god may allow that to go on thousands of years 10 minutes i don't know the beautiful testimony of Scripture, though, is he says he, that he doesn't allow that to go on forever. God has no interest in our endless rejection. But then I guess I would, I would flip it around and say to people, well, you're probably not hearing what I'm saying, because what I'm doing is I'm roman- I think a good word for it, a modern word for it, is romance. I'm romancing my son's heart. In other words, I am never satisfied, and this is what people think we're saying, that God is somehow satisfied with obedience that's not heartfelt. In other words, I'm not satisfied until Coleman's judgment comes into alignment with my judgment. And that can't happen from the outside. That has to happen from the inside. And that's exactly what did happen in Coleman. Um, At a certain point, Coleman realized, hey, it is more fun to pass the ball than to hold it alone in the dark. And And dad was right. I'm not satisfied with making Coleman pass the ball because of some sort of punishment. I might I might use discipline. I might say, Coleman, unless you pass the ball, you're not going to get dessert. But I'm never satisfied with that. The discipline is all for the sake of a transformation that has to happen in Coleman's heart, where his heart come in, comes into alignment with mine. In other, another way to say this is that God is never satisfied with shotgun weddings. So, the other huge picture in Jesus—that is, I think the foundation of all pictures—is that Jesus is the great bridegroom, and He said, "You know, when I'm lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself." I I think you can a good translation of that word "draw" or is is romance helkua means like draw, like a net, and that God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's doing something substantive. He's all, and and he is also doing something very psychological in the sense that he's romancing us, and he's never satisfied with a shotgun wedding. He doesn't want a bride that obeys him on the service and doesn't obey him from the heart. In fact, his commandment, his entire commandment, is is love. So God's in the business of creating love, and in a relationship, you create love with a story of grace. So you know, the most powerful thing in parenting children or in winning a bride is allowing them to hurt you and forgiving them and bleeding for them. And I think that's exactly what, what God is doing. Um, well, so, yeah. So anyway, I'll stop there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this, well this one is of huge the huge topic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the things too, that, that, that I find profound is that, what the judgment of God is doing in my life is it's destroying lies mm-hmm. that I have that are keeping me from seeing the true goodness of my heavenly father, lies about who God is and lies about who I am. And you tell yeah. a beautiful story about your daughter, Elizabeth, who who got just in a really foul mood and you couldn't understand what had you know what not gotten into her and it turned out that what had gotten into her was a lie about you and so then you had to use your judgment on Elizabeth to destroy that lie to restore the relationship so could you tell that yeah, story yeah
2: yeah i think this is a great picture of all of us and um well yeah i don't know how elizabeth well she must have been around 5 and i remember this particular day she was just mean to everybody and i you know of course i give threats i think i probably spanked at some point nothing really worked and finally i just said okay everybody in the van we're going to dinner so on the way to dinner in the van elizabeth was picking fights she was causing problems with her with her brothers and and her and her her two brothers and her sister so when we pulled into the restaurant i i remember i just said okay that's it everyone inside Elizabeth, you come up here and you sit right next to me in the front seat, and and I, I sat her down. I remember she looked at me with those big eyes, and I said, Elizabeth, what has gotten into you? And and she looked up at me and she said, Well, I know, but I'm not telling you. And at that, I thought, okay, I don't I don't know quite what to do about this. So finally, I just said, Okay, Elizabeth, look, you you come here and you just sit on my lap. And, and I just, I just hugged her. And, you know, she did, You could tell she didn't want to sit on my lap and yet she did want to sit on my lap. And she sat there for, for a time. Um, so we're kind this is kind of, I think of both, both of us, we're kind of both together in Hades here because the family's (laughs) inside enjoying pizza and we're in the cold van. And after a while, she, she just, uh, she just cracked and, and she, she said, um, daddy, she said, do you remember when you came to my kindergarten class? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, do you remember, uh, Kelly? And I said, yeah, she was this little girl that just like, I remember I showed up in the class and she just hung onto my leg and she wouldn't let go the entire time. And I thought, okay, this is weird. But when I, when I left visiting the class that day, well, well, well Elizabeth says, you remember Kelly. And then she says, well, after you left daddy, um, Kelly, she, she, she said that you said that you you didn't love me, you loved her. And then Elizabeth just like erupted in this like absolute fountain of tears. And I just let her cry for a while. And I, I finally said, Elizabeth, does Kelly have a daddy? And she said, yeah, but he moved away from Kelly and her mommy and, and I remember I looked at Elizabeth. I just said, listen, honey, I want you to hear me really clearly. I will always love you, and that will not change. And honey, please don't doubt my love for you, because when you doubt it, it hurts me. And when you doubt, please come and tell me that you doubt so I can just tell you again and again, I love you. And, and, and so what had gotten into elizabeth well a lie and i think the lie comes from the evil one it comes from the depths of hell and that is that the father doesn't love you and his mercies have come to an end and sadly god uses earthly fathers to tell us that lie and so i'm i'm trusting that god the father will undo that lie in kelly that he's a good father and he's not gonna he's not gonna leave her but sadly I think the church kind of buys into that lie and that we say that God is that God's love can kind of go away. And so, I mean, after Elizabeth, you know, if we sat in the van, hugged and cried for a while, Elizabeth, we went to the restaurant and she was like a, a different person. And I think the job of the church is to proclaim the good news that God is love and he hasn't abandoned us. And he's in the business of shaping us in his image. And when we believe, and, and because the story of grace creates faith and that faith then uh, changes us and shapes us in the image of God. So um, yeah, that uh, that day in the van, I, I don't know, to help me go. I think that's what's really going on with with all of us. We've believed a lie. And, the, you know, when you look at the original lie that was spoken in the garden, it was fascinating because the evil one basically says, look, you can take knowledge of good and evil and you can make yourself in the image of God. And he's pointing as, at a tree and on the tree is somehow the good incarnate in flesh. And Jesus himself is the good in flesh. And on the tree Um, And the good in flesh, we know this is also the life. So I think we can come to the cross in one of two ways. If in my head I'm thinking this is knowledge of good and evil that I can take and use to justify myself, I end up killing Jesus. But if I trust that he is the life who loves me, I end up receiving Jesus. So every time we come to communion, we confess our sin, that we try to seize control of God and use him all the time. And we also receive his grace that even though we take his life, he he gives his life. He's the father who is constantly giving his life to each one of us. Well, one of the
1: uh, really ironic things about the book of Romans is that the book of Romans has been sort of used as a club by people who want to seize the right of judgment to then past judgment, exclusionary, permanent judgment on on people, which is an ironic way because I think Judges, Romans, Paul says in Romans that we judge ourselves when we judge others. But anyway, so people kind of use Romans and kind of swing it around, and they end up uh, judging what I'll call selective sins taken out of context, and they pick up some of those, and they really go after folks with it, and then they ignore the other sins. <laughs> they're like, you hardly ever hear people really wanting to exclude somebody forever from God because they're greedy, Yeah. but <laughs> it it's just strange how Romans has ended up being used that way, and I was wondering if you could yeah. talk about that some.
2: Uh, yeah, and uh, it's funny because I think all of this goes right back to things jesus said so paul is the best exegete of jesus i think that that there is and jesus said the judgment you pronounce is the judgment you receive and so if i look at the world and think oh there's this list somewhere this law and i can analyze people pull them apart and decide who's good and who's bad in other words i can know who's loving god and the depths of the temple of their own soul well then um then i'm going to get the same judgment and so this the scariest thing to me about saying that there's a group of people that can't be saved or some that never will be saved is you're beginning to pronounce a judgment that in some way has to come that comes back on you but but paul does that in a fascinating way in romans chapter one so he talks about he talks about idol idolatry and in the middle of talking about all these different sins he mentions homosexuality and People love to grab what he says there and use it as a club, or they and then on the other side they love to grab it and explain no Paul's really justifying it because he's only talking about people that exchange their sexuality. But in Romans chapter one, the way Paul writes it, it in, it it like invites you to start making judgments about all of these things, and then what is I think is just a crack up um, is that. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. And, you know, the chapter divisions were added a thousand years later. So in Paul's letter, there are no chapter divisions. It's just the obvious next uh, thought. And he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. In other words, um, if you, you know, you, you all, he invited us all to enter into all these arguments, about who's guilty and not guilty. And he says, just by entering into that argument you're guilty because you're doing the very same thing. And, you know, what's fascinating about that for someone that is, you know, for me, homosexuality was never something I was tempted to, tempted to all sorts of other things. But Paul is saying, Peter, you're doing the very same thing. What is at the core of all sin is this desire um, to make yourself uh, the judge. And so... What is fascinating to me about particularly that issue of homosexuality as a pastor, there is, a, there is a, one side of the church, the liberal side, that desperately wants me to judge all homosexuals and justify them as right, the liberal side. And then there's another side that wants me to judge all homosexuals sexuals, and condemn them as wrong. Uh, that's the conservative side. But you can also say that about anything. There's one side that wants me to say all divorce is fine, and another side that wants me to say all divorce is wrong. There's this, um, th- there's this assumption in, in our modern world, in our modern Christian world, that the pastor's job is to be the judge of humanity, to take knowledge, that they come to church to get knowledge of good and evil from the pastor so they can use it to, to judge the world. As Paul develops his, you know, his argument in Romans, he's going to say, "Look, none of us have faith. None of us are righteous. We all utterly deserve uh, condemnation, and yet God is going to shower this amazing grace on us. It's going to create faith in all of us, and um, he, and that is justification. And Paul says it in several ways that God justifies the circumcised, he justifies the uncircumcised. He's going to justify." Um, He's going to justify everyone, and when I submit to God's judgment, well, it kind of obliterates all my judgments. And so the, the the irony is that people would use Romans to judge other folks, and I'm as who's in and who's out, and I'm thinking, well, that just means they did not read this book, uh, or they. <laughs> Pulled out a verse here or there. you know. So they're talking about the Romans road, which just blows my mind because they stop at like chapter 9. And I'm going, Romans has a lot more chapters than that. And you've got to stay on the road at least to Romans 11, 32, where God consigns all the disobedience say, may have mercy on all. But then when you get to Romans, it, yeah, it's, it's 14, Paul quotes Isaiah saying, as I live, says, and in Isaiah, he's swearing. God swears by himself, saying, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. And in Isaiah, it's absolutely obvious that he's talking about salvation. Um, God just says, and and in Isaiah, the picture is really clear. I'm going to destroy everyone and recreate them. Um, And so we're all in this thing together. And the good news that we get to preach is like, yeah, life is scary and freaky. But trust your father in heaven because he's going to do this thing. And And the longer you don't trust him, the longer you hold the ball alone in the corner of the basement. Um, it's not that there's not a, it's not that there's not consequences for not trusting God. Um, it's that the salvation belongs to God. Now one of the
1: things that you do, you, you, you've got there's three stories that have to do with learning to hear the voice of your true heavenly Father and allowing that to deliver you from your angst and from your trauma. One is the story of your—I don't know which of these sons—but the one where you had talked to him um, while he was in the womb. You drew a, drew a smiley face and you called oh, yeah, him. Uh, yeah. What'd you call him? A scooter, scooter or yeah, scooter? That was our yeah, first. Scooter, him, okay, yeah. so, the sco- so the scooter story. And then um, there's the there's the story of of your own father, who had an abusive father, who learned to hear the voice of his true heavenly father. And then there's the story of, of Fred that Fred Craddock tells, about yeah, Ben yeah. the bastard, Ben the bastard boy. And to me, these stories all kind of revolve around learning to hear the true voice of your father and receiving that gift of childhood from your true heavenly father. So, I don't know. Could you just kind of run through some of those stories real quick? So that I think they're very illustrative.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, where to start with that? I was just thinking of this verse I was just reading in mark 4 where Jesus is telling parables and he, this this occurred to me for the first time today. he said he says nothing is hidden except that it be revealed and you know I think we all struggle with God, where is your voice? why is it hidden? Why don't you make yourself more obvious? So you know if a person is wondering is God really my father and and I I'd say first, well, I believe Jesus. Nothing is hidden except that it will be revealed. It will be revealed that God is your father, but he wants you to seek, seek him. He wants you to look for him. And, you know, Paul begins talking about um, the the voice of God. You know, is he not heard? He says he's heard throughout the, the universe. He talks about that in chapter in chapter one. And yeah, the story that kind of helps me understand that was when my first son was born, he had an incredibly traumatic birth and It was such a mind-boggling experience for me on so many levels so i could talk about this forever but we're asking about the voice so anyway um (laughs) the nurse i remember she handed uh he was we called him scooter at the time because he because we hadn't arrived at a name and he was born over five weeks early real traumatic traumatic birth Uh, susan's placenta had ruptured and uh, there was just blood and pain everywhere when he was born, his head was kind of smashed into his cone, his eyes were black and blue. And it, which made me realize getting born hurts. And scripture says we must be born from above. But anyway, he's crying like crazy. And the nurse, I remember she walked over me, she put him in my arms and she said, talk to him. He knows your voice. And now remember he's screaming this whole time. The moment I said, scooter, instantly he grew still like he was at home and at peace which blew my mind at the time because I thought, how on earth did Jonathan know my voice? And the more I've reflected on that, the more I've thought, okay, well, this is fascinating uh, because scripture, and Paul's going to say this, he's going to say that all of creation is like a womb. And so we're being prepared for birth in this womb. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and we follow Jesus in birth and he comes back to help us be, help us be born. But how did how did john know my voice in the womb well every night before he was born i well i took this big black magic marker and drew this smiley face on susan's belly and you know every night for uh we go to bed i'd talk to the face and i'd say scooter you know we're so excited to meet you um i hope you're doing okay in there and uh can't wait to you know can't wait to can't wait to meet you i love you and As I thought about what did my son Jonathan hear, I thought, well, it's fascinating because he he heard my voice, but he couldn't distinguish words, and he couldn't find me. I wasn't a thing in that womb of a world, and yet when I spoke, everything in that womb world vibrated to the sound of my voice. And so the, the question comes up, are there things in this world that can't be explained by this world? And I would say they are these things. They are things like um, the truth and the life and and love and light. They they like come from another world, and they can't really be explained. And light's an interesting one, but that has to do with physics and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, the the point is that um, he did know he did know my voice, and there there were things in John that made him, that that were made to receive my voice. So John had ears, John, that that are made for hearing. That makes, that doesn't make sense in a womb world, but he could hear, he could hear my voice. And he, he had hands, um, and he had a mouth. Um, he had lungs. All of those things make no sense in the womb world, but they make sense in, in the outside world. So when he's, when he's born, um, he's, he knows me. And likewise, we were all made to recognize this thing called the good, uh, to recognize this thing called love, to recognize truth. I mean, even the most ardent atheistic scientists will say God is not true, and yet they are totally unaware that they just assume that there's this thing that's truth that cannot be proven with the scientific method. So um, anyway, I'm saying that God's voice is, is all around us. And then you asked me about, but what, what you asked him about another story. Okay. Well, your your father had to learn how to
1: hear he had a traumatic yeah. his father was he had to be delivered from the trauma of his own father through learning to hear the voice of his heavenly father, which allowed him then to forgive his earthly father. And he did it and and that transformed him. It broke the trauma. So he didn't traumatize you. He loved you. And then you were surprised yeah when you heard stories from your relatives about what your dad's father had been like, because how could my yeah. father have come from that father?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe I can tell real quickly the story of that Fred Craddock used to tell and then talking about my dad. Okay. But, uh, f- Fred, you know, was a Methodist pastor and he used to tell this. No, no, about no, Fred,
1: but... I don't want to correct you here, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in the Christian church, disciples of Christ. Yeah. And I did a doctorate of ministry in preaching and I took a preaching course from, from Fred Cr- Cr- from Craddock. Craddock. So I yeah. just want to make, I just want to set the record straight. We
2: claim well, that. I thought church he was disciples Methodist, but you say he was disciples of Christ. Oh, you guys yeah. are all related, right? Yeah. So anyway, I love Fred well, Craddock. Well, probably... sort of, sort of, sort of related. We can tell yeah. another story. <laughs> Okay, but he's one of my favorite creatures. Well, actually,
1: the disciples are more related to the Presbyterian Church. We actually broke away from the Presbyterian Church. Anyway. Yeah, so then then I'm...
2: Yeah, you and me, were in the same camp. But anyway, uh, Fred used to tell this story, and then Tony Campolo told it too. And I heard Fred tell it, and I heard Tony tell it and tony's version was a little bit different but it, they were basically all the same and that was that fred was on vacation in the smoky mountains and toward the end of his vacation he just wanted to be left alone and this old guy walks into the restaurant and um fred's thinking you know please don't talk to me i just i just want to spend some time alone but the guy walks up to his tables in overalls and and he says, "You know, you're gonna. Are you new around town?" He says, "Yeah." He says, you're "Gonna be here long?" And Fred says, "No." And he says, "Well, what do you do?" And Fred had this answer that he thought would shut him down. He said, "I'm a homiletics professor. At, it's the Candler School of Theology, something like that." I think, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And the the old guy said, "Well, listen, I got a preacher story for you." So he pulls up a chair and he sits down, and he describes how he was born and. Up in those hills and how kids used to make fun of him because they called him ben the bastard boy because he didn't know who his his dad was but he, he uh he snuck into church he was sinking to church because there was this preacher that he liked to listen to and he talked about how uh, this one day he got stuck in there he would usually leave before the end of the service so because it was kind of known that you know church wasn't a place for boys like him But as the service entity was making his way toward the door, he felt this big hand on his shoulder, and this voice boomed, uh, who's your daddy? Uh, And I think the way Fred Craddock said it is, let's see now, whose child are you? Whose son are you? And the preacher's talking really loud, so everybody's looking at him, and he's describing this to Fred Craddock, how at that moment he just utterly froze, and it was biggest nightmare that he'd just point out that he had no daddy. And then um, the old man said in a, in a really, he said, the preacher then said in a really loud voice, let's see now why well, you're a child of, you're a child of, he said, I know who your daddy is. You're a child, you're a child of God. And then he said, and I see a striking resemblance. And he swatted me on the bottom and he told me to run along and, inclaim, and claim my inheritance. That's how Fred tells the story. Well, the old man tells the story to Craddock. And then uh, Craddock just sat there a little bit, kind of stunned at how beautiful the story was. And the old man said, "Uh, listen, preacher, I was born that day, the day I found out who my daddy was. Then the old man got up, left the restaurant. The waitress came running over, and she said, what did he say to you? What did he say to you? And Fred said, well, he told me some story about when he was a kid. Why do you ask? And she said, well, don't don't you know who that is? That's Ben Hooper, who was elected twice the governor of Tennessee. And Ben Hooper, you know, I told Fred, he said, I was born that day. So the knowledge that God was his father transformed his life. And the story that I think I told in that same message about my dad was how, you know, I said that the scary thing is we think that we are doomed to be just like our earthly fathers. And we all have earthly fathers that are imperfect, because they're just like a faint reflection or a shadow of who the father is so if you have a if you have a bad father you have an idea of what a good father is because that father is is what you long for in your father and if you have a good father you you go oh well then somehow this good father i long for showed up in my father well my dad was really like the kindest most Christ-like man i've ever known and i was utterly shocked when Um, when, when I was a young man, I go visit my aunt and she would tell me stories about my grandpa who I'd never met. And in the depression, he became an alcoholic and was abusive to my aunts. And my dad, my, my dad never told this story. My aunt told me this story of how my dad came down the stairs one morning early, um, to see my grandma hanging on the stock of a. Of a rifle that my grandpa was raising around the kitchen screaming, I'm going to kill all them sons of bitches. Where are them sons of bitches? My mom's screaming, or my grandma's screaming, and my uh, my uncle, uh, he it didn't stop till my uncle ran across the frozen fields in Nebraska, called the, the police, and the police came and took my grandpa away. And my aunt's telling me this, and she said, Peter, your dad stood in the doorway and, and watched all of this. And I remember just thinking, how on earth did you become the person that you are? And and the answer was the same as Fred Craddock. And that was when he was a young man in Denver. He went to a church and some pastor told the story of the gospel and told him that God was his father. And that story, I believe, it created faith in my dad and he he gave himself to the Lord and Grace transformed him, and he was an utterly different kind of person. So um, I think that's I think that's the way the, 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 that's the way the gospel works. It literally is this living seed. There's power in in the Word. And what's sad about I think that modern church is we no longer we no longer trust that there's power in the Word, which is which is actually Jesus. Well, what, what occurred to me is what's interesting is there's a certain truth
1: that came through the Calvinist presentation and I, mm-hmm. to your father, which is that God is your sovereign father, has always been, and, he, and you belo- God is sovereign, and that grace saves alone. That message mm-hmm. came through, but it also came through with a lie, which was that grace does not go to all. Now, on yeah, the other yeah. side, the truth came through that God sincerely loves all of God's children and wants all of God's children to be saved. But the lie came through that God actually can't do what God wants to do. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, it's weird is that now in both in both these traditions, there are truths coming through, which are attached also to lies. But if you can just remove the lies, put the truths together, that then you end up back with the gospel. That's the forgotten gospel. That we used to yeah. have,
2: and yeah. I think re- that that's remarkably, where yeah.
1: I think that's what where we are right now, where we are beginning to be able to see all of this and to get this big picture and to be healed from it. And so, healing people, I, I think one of the important things about your ministry, and I want to recommend um, your podcast to people. I listen to it, and your voice is that the way you tell the story when you tell that story it heals people just the telling of that story because you're telling people who their who their daddy is
2: yeah exactly um yeah I, <laughs> that story just like gets at my heart and in some ways i realized that um all my wrestles with systematic theology all of this is simply asking god can i tell people that you love them and god has over and over again said yes 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 that's what my entire um the, all of scripture is about if you pay close attention to it and when you pay close attention to it i i think you realize it is simply this fundamental message and that is that god is salvation which in hebrew is forms the name yeshua which is jesus it's so profoundly good and it's not that faith doesn't matter faith is absolutely necessary in order to enjoy god you're going to have to trust god because in the presence of god you realize that he is entirely trustworthy and you yourself are not trustworthy in fact you're you're made from dust and and his and his breath um but it but as long as you don't trust him no, you you really are alone in the basement holding the ball. But the, yeah. the good news is God's not going to give up on you. So, you know, people that love the idea of hell, I'm like, well, don't think that I'm not saying there isn't this thing you can call hell, Hades or Sheol. Don't think that at all. I'm or Gehenna. Trusting. Yeah, and Gehenna, too. Gehenna, I think, is the very presence of God. Those things are very real. I'm just saying. And Lake of Fire. Yeah, like a fire is—I think—the fire of his presence that will sincerely burn you if you don't trust him. It burns away that old that old self. But what I'm saying is that God is one. God's not two. God is always love. God is always good, and God is always gracious. You know, when I, my dad—I <laughs> had such a great dad, but and but I was scared of dad because man, dad would discipline me. You know, if I was, but he, but his discipline never was like settling some score his discipline was always um peter you're you you're gonna learn that um that love is good and and always for the purpose of bringing me back to him my dad my dad would not rest if he thought that i was somehow untrusting of him and i believe that's the god of that is definitely the god of of scripture well, um,
1: I want to thank you for being as generous uh, with your time as you have um, as you have, have been uh, today, and and uh, you you are pastoring a church, and you've got a lot of people, and um, and that just that you're you're taking the time to have this conversation uh, with us, and that you're you're reaching out to all to through your sermon podcast. And, um, so just say just, so, so people want to find out more, I think it's relentless dash love.org is the, just tell people want to find out more. They want to get more connected with you or the podcast or the church. Maybe they're in the Denver area, uh, you know, within shooting distance, just say a little bit more about, uh,
2: how they can. Yeah. Yeah the website um that we kind of constructed for people out you know just everywhere is relentless dash love dot org and on the website we have uh uh all the old old sermons and transcripts and i have some catalogs to help people wrestling with difficult verses um, and if you watch the sermons rather than it's great to listen to the podcast but i I realized that I use a lot of visual aids in sermons, so I'll refer to pictures and things. And so if you're listening to the podcast and you think, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, <laughs> watching the sermon, Watching the sermon will help a lot. I mean, the fact that you said you listen to the podcast, David, I was thinking about this morning going, oh, dang, David wasn't able to get that the picture i was pointing to but so that that would be uh it would be great for you to check that out and if you click on sermons you'll see a thing for catalogs and i'll have sermons according to the the scripture reference the sermon is based on i also have a sermon catalog on scriptures that seem to oppose the idea of relentless love and then we have a topical sermon catalog i I think maybe the thing that god is asking me to contribute to what i hope is a new reformation is simply expository preaching from scripture because i'm concerned that people think that the idea that god loves everyone and god is redeeming everyone they think they have to throw out the bible and the bible is the foundation for that belief so i'd love to just help people with that the name of the church is we 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 sometimes people call it sanctuary downtown uh but the sanctuary denver and so we you can you can Google the Sanctuary Denver, but sometimes it takes people to the Denver Sanctuary, which is an S&M bondage club. So anyway, it gets a little <laughs> bit confusing. We're not that. We're the church. Uh, so yeah, so you can also go to the church website, which is uh, the org. So um, and then I have uh, the thing I I keep referring to this and I feel bad, but I keep I don't feel bad. I'm trying to get people to read them. I have these two books on (laughs) Genesis, and I think I'm supposed to write a third called The Tree in the Middle of the Garden Before I Die, but I'm kind of really passionate that we've missed the big story of Scripture, and I was a geology major, so I always was embarrassed by Genesis. Now, I'm utterly fascinated by it because I think the first few, few chapters tell the story of all of humanity but um those those two books are the history of time Hello. and the genesis of you and god and his his body um i i think maybe i'm most excited for people to read these two books that i wrote and they're, they're basically on genesis so people think all sorts of things when they think genesis but the big idea is that we've started reading the Bible in the wrong place. We've started reading with the story of our failure Mm -hmm. rather than starting to read with the story of God's success. And I think the very first chapter of Genesis is really an overview of all space and time. And it's a story that God is making uh, everything good. And once you get to the second chapter, he's beginning to tell the story of how God makes us good, which happens on the sixth day of creation. And it happens through this tree in the middle of the garden that I think ultimately points to the cross. And with the story of grace, God creates faith in in us. And we are all bound together in this one body called the body of Christ, which, uh, which is the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings and dreams. So anyway, those two books, the first one is called The History of Time and the Genesis of You and that's on Amazon, and we just kind of re- redid it. So there's a most recent version. The second book is was originally titled God and His Sexy Body, but the word sexy scared everyone away, I think. So we retitled it God and His Body, and that has to do with the idea that he's bringing us all together in himself. And the third book that I want to write before I die is called um, The Tree in the Middle of the Garden, which really has to do with the atonement and what, mm-hmm. what God is doing at the cross.
1: Well, there's a lot of uh, uh, beautiful resources that you have, and I'd, I'd love for everybody to check those out and to hear your voice. And so thank you for what you're doing. And I I hope maybe uh, we can all gather back at the sanctuary Denver sometime for another conference again, sometime in the future. I hope that all, I hope that all happens in, in the, in the new world that we're coming into. I, I hope that we can uh, maybe uh, we can all just uh, benefit from all of this together and, and and have a fresh, maybe understanding of of God's grace. And so thank you for your part in all of that.
2: Yeah. And David, thank you so much for doing this podcast and writing your book and your ministry. I really appreciate you. So you're awesome. All right, You do. All right. We'll have end there day. with the awesomeness of David Arvin. <laughs> How's that? That's a okay. great for calling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: Talk
2: to you later. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.